somewhere high above the Indian Ocean in the smart enough to know better comedy blimp. Dad. Dad, where are you? Dad. It's no time for hide and seek. As the narrator said, we're somewhere high above the Indian Ocean in the smart enough to better comedy blimp. It's time to record the podcast. Dan? Wait, what's this note? Greg, I can't take the constant reminders that dinosaurs have feathers. It was all good-natured ribbing, but every story in the media about feathered dinosaurs was sent to me by malicious listeners dedicated to crushing my spirit. So I've decided to rest in the most obvious place to get over my dino fear. Portugal. Don't overthink it. I promise I shall return one day. Whatever you do, do not replace me with that handsome Dr. Joel Gilmore. Yours, Dan J. 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 Damn it, Dan. You don't want me to work with handsome Dr. Joel, but you leave me no choice. You leave me no choice. Turn on. Gregoire and Dan Beeston are smart enough to know better. Episode 150 of Smart Enough to Know Better. We're a podcast of science, comedy, and ignorance. I'm Greg Wah. And I am Joel Gilmore. Wait, wait, hang on. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, that's not what you say. You say, and I'm Dan Beeston. Look, I don't want to come here under false pretenses. Hang on, hang on. You're not... Wait, wait, let me... Wait, you're not Dan Beeston. Who are you? And I would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for you pesky kids. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for Dan's replacement for this podcast. It's TV's Dr. Joel Gilmore. Yay. Thank you. Thank you. Try the veal. <laughs> so, Hi, it's very exciting to be here, Greg. Very exciting to be here. Thank you, Dr. Joel. Now, for those who don't know, you should know Dr. Joel. He's on SBS Food Channel's Food Lab, and he's also one of the presenters on Network 10's Scope program as well. So you're like seriously TV famous. I'm not saying I'm carrying around signed photos with me, but if you need a photo. So in in this episode, I will be discussing how dubstep may ruin your sex life. That's probably too much information, Greg. Moving on. And what are you talking about, Dr. Joel? Yeah. (laughs) Tell me about dubstep and your sex life, someone's sex life. No, 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 no. no, We're just just making, we're trying to, I'm trying to sizzle the podcast. That wasn't. Oh, definitely the sizzle bit. And I want to talk about making the perfect pancakes. I want to talk about whether the planet Earth will survive the sun going white dwarf. And I want to talk about a little bit more about climate change and what <laughs> happens when there are no clouds. This week in science, tell me about your perfect pancakes. Right. So I have been, and I've been doing this for a while now, trying to find the perfect pancakes, something I'm very passionate about. <laughs> 
some men are trying to find the, the, the new particle, like they will explain dark matter. Some women are trying to solve cancer. Some people are trying to discover new things in the world. But Dr. Joel, the perfect pancake. It's, it's no I've goal. got my priorities sorted. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's been a lot all weekends. Like I like to do brunch. And increasingly, my kitchen starts to look a bit like a science lab with all these half-torn pancakes lying around and I've got calipers and scales and we're doing blind taste tests. Do you invite people over to eat the detritus? Like, are you like, oh, come and eat the evidence? No, is the short answer because oh. I have me, my partner and my dog that all are happy to eat. <laughs> my dog has a very refined palate. Mm. He, you know, he prefers triple brie over double brie. Um <laughs> I can't taste the difference, but, you know, he's like, oh, no, that's the good stuff. So blind taste test very important because, you know, it's easy to convince yourself that you've mm. made a better pancake. Mm. And in particular, I've been trying to look at how do you get pancakes that are tender, but also pancakes that are fluffy and moist. Because it's easy to get pancakes that are kind of moist but gluggy or pancakes that are really fluffy but are very dry. How do you get that perfect combo? I'm already salivating. Ring the bell. Ring the bell. It's, it's yeah. brunch time. One of the things I've been looking at and trying to do some research on, you know, reading papers and everything, but it's, <laughs> you know, because that's, that's how I spend my weekends, apparently. But it's a little bit tricky because the idea of gluten, right? Mm. You know, like mixing up bread and mm. you want to really knead the bread because that forces the proteins in the flour to combine together and form stretchy gluten. Of course. Delicious, delicious gluten. Delicious gluten, which is actually good for almost everybody, or at least not bad, mm. unless you've got celiac disease. There's this sort of weird thing where pancakes and muffins, you often get these instructions to mix them using the muffin method. Mm. And this is the idea that you mix up all your dry ingredients, then you mix up all your wet ingredients, and then you just barely mix it together. Ooh. You you know, you whisk it for five or ten seconds top, and you just stop. And the argument for that has often been that you don't want to produce gluten. If you're making muffins and arguably pancakes, you want to minimize the amount of gluten so they stay very tender. Modern pancakes and modern muffins have a lot more sugar and fat mm. in them than traditional mm. muffins did, Yum. Right? which is delicious because these things are now cheap and plentiful and we're all gluts that you know have ignored any form of dietary restraint. <laughs> We do. It's impossible. Back in the day, back when we were all living on the savannah, the chance of getting sugar or fat was almost impossible. And so our bodies were like, more of that, please. And now it's just like, oh, even more of that. Who knows? At any moment, my comfortable middle class existence could be thrust back to savannah and I have to like eat a hyena with my bare hands or something. And it just, and I'm not ready for it. So I'm, I'm storing up hyena power. See, I am ready for the apocalypse. Let me just tell you. <laughs> Only the fattest to survive the apocalypse. <laughs> There is this thing where, because these modern recipes have lots of fat and sugar, this actually inhibits gluten formation. Mm. Arguably, and I mean that in the literal sense that, you know, people debate this and it's not really clear, you don't really need to worry about too much gluten unless you're really beating the heck out of this mixture. It might be hard to form a lot of gluten. So I've been doing experiments where mixing up one batch very lightly, mixing up another batch really heavily, making the pancakes and then trying to do taste tests to see whether it really is tougher or not. Best as we can tell, there is no difference. We can't distinguish between the low, medium, and heavy mixing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Can your dog? But, no. Well, I mean, he might be able to, but he hasn't found a way of communicating uh, this very well. So his paper isn't out yet, obviously. 
But it does seem, though, that there is a good reason to do this muffin method. And that's because the more you mix it, the smoother and runnier the batter gets. So the more homogeneous, the more evenly distributed the flour is amongst everything else, the runnier it is. And so when you pour the pancake batter onto your pan, they spread out a lot more and they get flatter and they don't get as high. Whereas if it's just barely mixed, you end up with this quite lumpy batter. And as it cooks, it evens out. But by that point, it's cooked and it's set and you get really light and fluffy pancakes. And that seems to be the big difference to me. Very nice. There we go. So is this something that you're going to share with the world and, and like just dominate the world of pancakes? It's a fairly niche field, mm, so mm. I think I've got a reasonable chance. But yes, I'm trying. I, I am trying to write my treatise on pancakes, <laughs> and that my my contribution to the food science world. You'll know you're here to hear first, ladies and gentlemen, right here on the podcast when he wins the Nobel Prize for food preparation, Dr. Joel Gilmore. I think my best chance is probably an Ig Nobel, but we'll see. For people who know me, they may be surprised to discover I have a a secret interest I don't share very often, Dr. Joel. There's the doctor-client privilege. You can't tell anyone about this thing, I'm going to tell you. I'm I'm a little nervous, but (laughs) sure. I'm not sure how much that extends to physicists, but go ahead. (laughs) Just for you and me and your millions of listeners. (laughs) Exactly right. I actually quite like dubstep. I've got that off my chest now. I feel we can move on now in our relationship. Ah, phew. I, I feel like I really know you more as a person, right? <laughs> but I've discovered recently that maybe this is what's going to slow down my uh, chances of making mini Gregs in the future. Because it seems that Skrillex, especially dubstep and Skrillex, reduces the chances of mosquitoes copulating. Reduces the chances of mosquitoes copulating? Yes, yes. So... How do we know this? (laughs) There are researchers in Malaysia and in Thailand, and they're trying to work out ways of stopping dengue-carrying mosquitoes from breeding. And they've tried all sorts of weird ways. They're not chemical ways, obviously, just different, different ways. And one of the ideas they tried, based on a an older an older report about ACDC reducing lady beetles from being less effective predators, basically. So they decided, okay, let's let's have a look at that. And they decided to get some Skrillex and pay, play Scary Monsters and Nice Spirits at full volume at night in a room full of mosquitoes and see if that would stop them from producing more mosquitoes. And the answer is yes. It seems to slow them down from getting it on. It actually reduces the number of larvae produced and eggs produced, basically mosquitoes in general. Hmm. Wow. Now, uh, as a scientist, I have to ask, did they also test out Mozart or Barry Manilow or... Supposedly they did. They didn't actually say what other sorts of music. They did try other sorts of music as well and didn't get the same effect. So it seems to be Skrillex, dubstep, and Skrillex particularly, which is interesting. Oh. And. Oh. The sound has been reported to play an important role in the sexual interactions and survival of many insects. There is definitely sound has involved, and this has ruined it. So it somehow ruins it. And here's their theory. So when you're lying in bed at night and you hear that noise of a, a mosquito buzzing around your ears, that's actually the mating call of a mosquito looking for another mosquito. 
So they're actually the male or the female, male and female. So they're, they're both of them. So the female puts out a 40 Hertz tone. So it'll be the, it'll be the, I don't know if that's 40. No, sorry, 400 Hertz, 400 Hertz. You wouldn't even Bailey. Oh, no, right. Yeah. 400 Hearts. 40, 40 Hertz would be almost non, non-hearable. Yeah. It'd be 20, yeah. It'd be, that's a big, big mosquito. <laughs> 400 Hertz. And the male puts out, 600 hertz. No idea if that was 400 or 600 hertz, by the way, but that's, I'm, I'm giving you the idea. And so they're looking for each other based on the sound. So the 400 hertz is the female and the 600 hertz is the male and looking for the other tones. And when they get close to each other and they're like, hey, do you want to like, you know, get it on? They both start singing at 1,200 hertz. They think, not the mosquitoes, but the, the scientists think that the Skrillex dubstep actually interferes with those hertz range. They can't hear each other they can't hear the 400 and 600 hertz they can't find each other so when they do find each other they're like are, are, are you a girl or a boy are, are you interested i don't i'm not getting any of the signals i don't know i'm not and you know being a modern day mosquito i'm not going to assume anything i always get permission very woke to, they're, they're very woke mosquitoes and they won't try anything on until they get they get they get consent which is a really good way of doing consent, it yeah which, which is great but they so they don't get consent they can't hear the consent and therefore they they just leave and there's less courtships going on if you are worried about your sex life and why you may be alone or why your partner may not be interested, it may be because you're blasting Skrillex in the room at full volume night after night. Or maybe you just don't have perfect pitch and you're, you're missing that. You know, like, well, I'm not going to talk to a 498, let me tell you. <laughs> so I saw a story. I'm really interested okay. in these climate change tipping points. You make a small a small error now and at least to disastrous consequences later. Mm. You know, like your dog pooping in the house on the same day your Roomba is scheduled to vacuum. <laughs> yes. And that's yeah. kind of that's kind of what we're doing to the environment. We're really just pushing around our, our feces on the floor with our machines. Uh-oh. Yeah. Uh-oh. Yeah. It's not, not not ideal. I've heard about these stories like that the Arctic permafrost is going to melt. And when it melts, it will release the methane that's mm. trapped in there. And methane is much, much more potent than carbon dioxide, mm-hmm. which leads to more warming and more melting and more methane, more warming and so on and so forth. But the recent one that the California Institute of Technology has come up with is doing modeling around cloud cover. They estimate that when carbon dioxide gets to quite serious levels, but levels that are sort of on par with a do-nothing world where we Mm. just kind of keep trundling along, it will start to stop clouds from forming. Mm. Okay, stop clouds, so there'll be no more clouds in the sky. It gets so warm that clouds won't form in the sky. Look, it seems to be some combination of warming, because warmer air holds more moisture, Mm. and that has... Yes. There's that sort of thing. But I think also it's something to do with the carbon dioxide itself uh, breaking up the cloud. But yes, it's beyond a certain level, they say, of carbon dioxide that will start to fracture the clouds, particularly those high levels of stratocumulus clouds. So they'll go down by like 20%. And anyway, that leads to something like 12 degrees or another 8 degrees on top of um, current warming projections. Wow. Okay. So you end up like, 
Yeah, AI world, which is 12 degrees hotter on average. Right. Oh, my goodness. It's scary to think about. I think they're not talking like all clouds. It's like a, you know, a small reduction in clouds. But clouds are big, and even a small reduction means a lot more sunlight getting through, and so that leads to runaway heating and... Maybe putting things uh, like sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere, if this happens, of then geoengineering, and so you start creating cloud cover. So yeah. And you pump... You pu- and. and it's not a good thing. This is the thing you kind of go, oh, what a great idea. And you go, it's not, it, it may just be something we have to do. For those who don't know about it, you take sulfur dioxide and you basically put up plane after plane pumping sulfur dioxide into the air. This forms partic- uh, particles in the high atmosphere that take a long time to fall out and they create clouds. So you, and I'm talking uh, full cloud cover, basically. The sky, when I was listening about this and reading about this, the sky would just be covered in clouds at this point. It would just be white clouds everywhere. There would be no more blue sky anywhere on Earth. It would just be cloud every day of your life. Not big, fluffy clouds, but high atmosphere clouds. So the sky would be a white color. And this would reduce some of the, hopefully, some of the heat because mm. of the albedo effect. The, the light would bounce off the clouds. But the problem with that, of course, is we don't know what that would do. We have one planet, one, one experiment point, And if it goes horribly wrong, we're, we're stuffed. Like it's, it's really scary when we think about that sort of stuff. But if we're going to lose more clouds, what you're talking about is if we're going to lose clouds, maybe we're going to have to create more clouds. <sighs> yeah. Who knows what? I think it's, yeah, it's, it's terrifying thinking about these huge, big changes that you know, are quite easily avoidable, particularly this sort of thing, yes. with relatively modest effort, and yet here we are. We have to remember that this can be changed, and this just requires political will and requires an understanding that the people who don't want it aren't stupid. They don't mm. want it because they have fingers in pies that won't make a lot of money out of climate change mitigation and i'm just being as honest as i can be there and so people who sell a lot of coal and oil don't want you to stop using coal and oil i understand why they want money but really at the end of the day stuff that it's a cost to inaction like we often talk about what is the cost of mitigating climate change what's the cost of building solar panels and wind farms instead Mm. of coal actually these days it's not too bad but Mm. there is a cost to not doing anything and that is that you end up with more extreme weather in summer and so mm. more people dying in hospitals and yep and yes. respiratory infections and cancers and and i mean the insurance companies with you know on beaches you know of course as the sea rises and extreme weather events but here's my why they don't care is because they're not the ones who'll be paying the cost Let's say yeah. that oil company aren't going to be told to pay for it. It'll be you and I paying for it with our taxes. So they don't really mind. They're like, well, we'll make a billion kajillion dollars over the next 10, 20 years, and then we'll get out of the industry, and the cleanup costs will fall on the punters, really. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Um, so, well, right. <laughs> remember, hopefully you live in a democracy and vote for people who are going to change it. There you go. Or... Yeah. Destroy the state and start again. One or the other. And I, I must say, I've never been more optimistic about climate change now than over the last few years. Mm. That all of the technology has really come through. There is a you know increasing swell of goodwill. People believe in it and they want action. And I, I'm feeling really confident that you know, one more push and we're going to get there. We need you to stay in the fight, Dr. Joel. Listen to his calming voice. It's going to be okay. Just stay the course. We can do this together. 
The other story that I saw recently is about you know, this search for exoplanets. Mm, oh, planets around uh, other stars. Now and... you're talking my language. Let's go. All right. Oh, but no, you, you probably cross all of this stuff, Greg. Oh, tell me again. It's like reading a small child their favorite story in bed. Oh, uh, right. Daddy Joel, tell me a story. Uh, make the right voices and everything. Ooh, go, go, go. Once upon a time, there was a star far, far away. <laughs> that star eventually grew into a red giant and wiped out all of the planets surrounding it and then slowly cooled down, or shrunk down even, to become a white dwarf. But one plucky little planet might possibly have survived. What? Are you kidding? What? So this is is a story that looking for, around these white dwarfs, there is like this debris field and there's gas and all these little bits and pieces that are surrounding it left over, Thought to be left over, I think, from those planets that, mm. you know, once were there. But they're very, very tiny. Mm. And what these astronomers have done is a brilliant technique. They have looked for objects that might be glowing or giving off gas that are orbiting. Mm. And then they've looked for that spectrum and then looked for the Doppler shift of the spectrum <laughs> as this object orbits the white dwarf. And they calculated all this sort of stuff. And they say that they have found a very, very dense and reasonably small, although large in the, the scheme of, you know. Small, small but large. Good yep. Good. Yep. I, I'm very precise here. <laughs> and a planet. So basically a planet has been found? An exoplanet? Well, I, or the, the remnant of a planet. Oh, I think right. what they think is it might be a, because it's traveling really, really close to this white dwarf. Mm. So the white dwarf has like, the mass of the sun, give or take, but only the size of the Earth. Mm, Very, mm. very dense. Mm. And this object is orbiting around. It takes two hours to zip around. Wow. It must have been stupidly, it must, that must be stupidly close or it must be moving unbelievably fast or both. Right. And so whatever it is must be like really structurally sound. (laughs) Um, Aliens. It's aliens. well, who knows, right? I mean, probably the astronomers do. Yes, it's, it's, um, not, it's not aliens, everyone. It's, it's all come down. But the, the idea being that any ordinary planet that got that close to a white dwarf would be ripped apart, mm-hmm. you know, after the first million times around or so. But this object has survived. Oh, my goodness. I love the fact. So there's an idea that there was a star, whatever that star was originally, and as I said, it puffed up its outer layers, and those outer layers would have probably engulfed this planet. Like the Earth is going to get engulfed by the sun one day. Like we, we, we're pretty confident that the red, red giant sun will eat the Earth one day, but it didn't tear it to pieces. It didn't bake it. Well, we probably baked it pretty badly, but just like a baked potato, there's like a carbonized core or something that's left. Maybe the iron core, maybe something like that. And it's pulled in closer to the white dwarf. And of course, as a as you get closer to at the, the center of mass, of course, the angular momentum increases. And so it's now zipping around faster and faster and faster. Because just like when a ballerina pulls their arms in when they're spinning, they go faster and faster and faster. This thing probably started a long way out and it's got closer and closer. And now it's like terracing along. Ah, I'm so excited. That's so cool. Yeah. And so the hope is that like all of this work, by studying more of these distant solar systems, we're getting snapshots of what our solar system will look like at different periods in the future and, oh. you know, learn more about what our fate awaits. And Oh, 
so exciting. We, my advice is to us not to be there. The, the sun's probably going to become a red giant in about 2 billion years or so, 3 billion years. So we probably don't want to be there when that starts happening. In fact, it, so we don't want to be there, but we can maybe like move the earth out of the way or, or, or just go somewhere else, you know, just go somewhere else. Well, go, to, go to Mars. Yes, and then move further out again, and just keep moving planet to planet. All the anyway, humans are clever. We'll work it out. We'll have. We'll work it out. I've watched the Expanse. Now, Doctor Joel, you may not realize this, but this podcast is supported by our amazing patrons on Patreon. These are truly wonderful people, heroes of our time. No, they they really, really are. Our podcast. It will always be free. We'll always put it out for free. But we say to people, we think that every two weeks we produce at least an hour's worth of content of, of well-researched or at least uh, well-read or at least very excitable content. One of those three, if not all of them. And we like to think that this is worth a few dollars. So we ask people to throw in a few dollars. And amazingly, people do. And so to our listeners, our patrons who give us some money, thank you very much to Morden O'Hare. Thank you very much to A.V. Greenberry, Matthew Toy, Lindsay Jenkinson, Gary Heather, Andrew Trousdale, Andrew Whitehurst, The Evil One, Alana Mitchell, Earth Dog 58, Matt Ewers, Andrew Potts, Steve Eichenhout, Phil Holland, Michael Barnes, and Elizabeth Yunkin. These people are amazing. They give us some money every time. And if you want to have your name put on the podcast, you can throw us $5 a month as well. But don't worry, you can give us less than that, which other people do as well, just to support us. And we love you as well. But I'm not going to read out your name except... Dylan Steer, I'm going to let you have your name read out, even though you only, in inverted commas, gave us $2. You could get your name read out every time, just if uh, by piping up to $5. Pretty cunning, huh? That was pretty cunning. What do you think of that, Joel? Was that, was that cunning? That was a devious marketing mechanism. Thank Greg. you very much. Oh, thank you. I love it. I love being devious. Some people are very strange and have paid a premium to be insulted on the podcast. These are the true heroes of our podcast who pay the most and therefore get the experience every month of being insulted by Dan Beeston. But Dan is not here. And... Sorry, I won't interrupt you again. Continue your spiel. (laughs) Dan is not here and therefore it's up to me. Now, I am way too nice a human being to insult my beautiful, wonderful listeners. So, Dr. Joel... I'm not going to make you do it either. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was like, science insults. You know, how do you really insult someone scientifically? Hmm. Well, I can, I can tell you how. I have found a really interesting paper that talks about the cunning ways that research scientists talk about other research scientists that are, is very insulting, but only to other research scientists. Now, you have been a research scientist, have you not, Dr. Joel? I have. I have. For a, for a not terribly long period before I decided I wanted to get into industry and more hands-on things. But yes, I have been a scientist. I have written my papers. I have slaved through the peer review process. Brilliant. Well, therefore, I will get you to tell me how insulting these insults feel to you as a research and scientist. So, Steve Stewart, you attend very few international meetings. Ooh. Yes. Ooh, that... That's harsh, that Steve. Is harsh. You should you should feel the burn there. That's a pretty big. And one. That, that works on multiple levels. You know, mm. 
implying that not only do you not have enough funding to attend meetings, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but you're not important enough to be invited to attend meetings. So yes. we don't want to fly you to things. Mm. Yes. Oh. Yes. Harsh, isn't it? Take that, Steve. You are, you, you attend few international meetings. Dustin Fallon, Dustin Fallon, you are mostly the middle author of all your publications. Oh, middle author. You're a middle author. Oh, what have I, what have I said there, Dr. Joel? What's, if you're a middle author, what have I really said then? You're middle author, then you have been a contributor to this paper. But a lot of people can be contributors in lots of, you know, very small and sometimes insignificant ways. Mm -hmm. It's actually funny because different fields put their ordering differently. In a lot of fields, it's order of important. You know, mm. first author is the most important, and yes. then it sort of winds its way down to the person who made the coffee or something. Yes. Uh, in physics, in physics, and this is why I really feel the burn here, in physics, the first author is the one who wrote the paper. Mm. They're typically not always the PhD student or the lead, you know, the lead on the paper, and they sat down, they wrote the paper, and perhaps, you know, coordinated the research. Mm. The last author is the person is actually the most important. Ooh. They're the person who, it's their lab. They were typically the professor. You know that, yes, may, you know, maybe someone else did the research and actually ran the study, but there was some guidance and views of that professor. Mm. And sandwich in between is everyone else, the people mm. who, you know, contributed in some way, contributed, got across the bar to saying, well, yes, you were, in it. we couldn't have done this paper without you, I guess, and you get middle author. But, Middle author doesn't get you a promotion. There you go. So Dustin Fallon, you are mostly a middle author of your publications. Take that, sir. Take that. Now we're moving on. Dustin, you are doomed doomed to a life of postdocing. <laughs> Al Batson, your trainees are not attaining academic positions. Your trainees oh. are not attaining academic positions. That's pretty well, hard. That's just that's just harsh. That's very and harsh. So many people getting hurt by that one. Because Al is not good enough, other people aren't achieving. That's what it's really saying to me. Yeah. If you don't get a position early on, that's it. Your academic career is under great threat. Mm, mm. Oh, Al, what have you done? <laughs> what have you done, Al? What have you done? Shocking. Feel bad about yourself. Eric Wilson. Eric Wilson, you are actually a very good scientist. You're a very good scientist. See, Eric... Always ask not to be insulted on the podcast. So, Eric, you're a very good scientist. Well done, Eric. Thank you. <clears throat> Scott Driscoll. Scott Driscoll. Finishing up with Scott today. Scott Driscoll. On your papers, it says very clearly, your science is derivative and or incremental. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty yeah. sure I've... I, I think I might have had something like that on a on a reviewer once, you know. Reviewer three, they're always the cranky one. Yes. You know, the accusation of incremental research where, you, you know, it's like adding the next digit of pi. I mean, sure, <laughs> it's new, but anybody could have done it. You just sit there long enough. and Ah, oh, so there you go. There you have it. Scott, you are a derivative and or incremental sciencer. Oh, you should feel bad about yourself. And that's it. But not too bad, just a little bit more bad than you did yesterday. <laughs> so if you want to be insulted on the podcast, 
by Dan or by me or by a scientist like Dr. Joel, then you can always pay $15 for the privilege. Why you do that, I'm not terribly sure, but people seem to like it. I don't know. They seem to enjoy it. So, you know, whatever, man. Whatever floats your boat. I'm not here to yuck your yum. So we come now to the end of the podcast. Normally, at this point, we would have our walk of shame. A big part of our podcast has always been to point out that Dad and I are just two idiots. And ways a lot of time get things wrong and if we get it wrong listeners you can send things into me at greg at smartenough.org or to dan at smartenough.org and we'll read out those corrections on the air but no one sent me anything and no one sent dan anything as far as i'm aware though he's gallivanting somewhere in portugal now you may be wondering where he is i should point this out you may not know this but dan is married to the most amazing person, the Frog Princess. And it is a well-known fact that the French have to return to their homelands to be replenished of power every couple of years. It's either they have to be buried in the ground like truffles, or they have to bathe themselves in the blood of their leaders to regain her never-ending youthfulness. This woman has not aged since I've known her, and it's because I think she bathes in the blood of French leaders that have failed them. I just, look, I don't I, know. Dan Dan seems like he might be aging at twice the normal rate. Well, uh, not... <laughs> maybe he is the Dorian Gray picture for the Frog Princess. <laughs> maybe that's true. They they've gone off to have a little holiday together, so I hope they're having a great time. So that we haven't had anyone get in contact to us about any mistakes we've made, but that's okay because we have Doctor Joel, and Doctor Joel has kept me on the straight and narrow the entire time. So Doctor Joel, if people want to know more about you and where to find you and what you're doing and how they can get in and touch you and and need all your gluteny proteins how can they find you well you know there are some nice bushes outside my window don't say that because they might <laughs> we, have, we have very excitable patrons if you do that i'll get greg and dan to insult you again <laughs> but if you want to insult me directly or just talk about food and science and stuff you can of course find me on social media i'm joel gilmore on twitter and Dr. Joel Gilmore on Facebook and, you know, all the usual Instagram and whatnot. But you can also catch me on Food Lab on SBS Food, which is a very fun show talking about the science of cooking and pancakes are just the beginning for me. If you're more a hands-on type, I'm doing segment on a kids' TV show, Scope, which you can watch on the Network 10 website. Fun things like dropping toast to see how it flips and I love, I love experiment Dr. Joel has the job I want in the whole the world so basically if anything mysterious happens to Dr. Joel you'll know exactly what's going on so if I'm just suddenly there going hello I'm also Dr. Joel then we'll know what's happened everyone F- forget what I said about those bushes there are no <laughs> bushes outside my house and of course we mean Australian TV shows so our well, international listeners you may just have to use a VPN I'm, I, didn't, I didn't say that but you know just use a VPN it's really easy nowadays you can you can undo geo blocking i am not i'm not saying anyone should but you know vpns are a thing they exist information wants to be free supposedly supposedly dr joel thank you very much for filling in for dan he has very big shoes to fill he's a very tall man i think he's done an admirable job so thank you much for joining us today thank you it was fantastic to chat to you and learn all about what's on your mind I'm going to take that as a compliment. And as we always like to say... Don't let Skrillex ruin your sex life.
I didn't even say not that sort of doctor. I thought well, that's probably not appropriate right now with this guy bleeding in front of me. But no, no. <laughs> weird flex, but okay, let's go with that. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Being a mutant isn't always superpowers. Sometimes, well, it's... way way to ruin my day, Greg. <laughs> Sometimes it's a um, it's a life of loneliness. Mutant powers, like, just like Wolverine. As I try and point out, most people who are gluten intolerant aren't gluten intolerant. They're just intolerant. That's all I have to say. And I haven't got time for intolerant people. And you can contact Greg on... <laughs> Greg at smartenough.org. Smart Enough.